you know, prospect of 10 million Bitcoins being bought, it may not be possible for at all, like for any amount of money, because, you know, as more people try to do that, the price will go up and then they won't be able to afford to do it. I uh, went to some kind of private meeting, like a, a bunch of like investors and a few tech people, just like general discussion some years ago. And like a question I asked for the like Bitcoin holder or investor or fund manager type of people is like, well, what features would you value most mm -hmm. from the technical side for Bitcoin? And their answer was surprising, which was like, just don't break it. Welcome back to the Freedom Footprint Show, the Bitcoin philosophy show with Knut Svanholm and me, Luke the Pseudofin. For those of you who've been in the Bitcoin space for a while, our guest today needs no introduction. Joining us is none other than Dr. Adam Back, co-founder and CEO of Blockstream, the mind behind Hashcash and a true OG Bitcoiner. In today's in-person interview, recorded at Balticati Badger 2023, shout out Huddle, we dive into plenty of important topics. We discover Blockstream's current projects, we explore the developments of Bitcoin's second layer solutions, and we debate their use cases after hyper-Bitcoinization. We even touch on the drive chain debate. You'll want to hear what Adam has to say about that. But before we jump in, a quick reminder that the best way to support the show is to send us a boost or stream us some sats using a value for value podcasting app such as Fountain. If you're listening to the show as a podcast, check it out on Fountain. You can earn sats from listening and you can support us and all your other favorite shows. You can also support us on Geyser Fund or send sats directly to our lightning address, freedom at getalbi.com. And if you want to exchange your dirty fiat, you can support us on Patreon. All our links are in the description. If you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to like the episode and subscribe to the channel. Even if you're listening as a podcast, head over to our YouTube channel and subscribe to us there. It would be a big help. And finally, we want to thank today's sponsors. Wasabi Wallet, Orange Pill App, The Bitcoin Way, Zelox, and Bitcoinbook.shop. All their information is in the description. We'll be talking a bit more about them later. And now, without further ado, here is Adam Back on the Freedom Footprint Show. Yeah, so... A man that needs no introduction. Satoshi, uh, I mean, Dr. Adam Back. Welcome <laughs> yeah, to the Freedom, not, not Freedom, Footprint for, uh, Freedom Footprint Show. That's the name of our show, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Welcome. Um, yeah, this, the CEO of Blockstream and mentioned in the white paper and all this stuff. Great. Um, I saw your panel uh, yesterday with uh, about, yeah, about things we don't usually talk about, like price. <laughs> And there was a, a couple of takeaways. Uh, there was a question during the panel, like, do we have to end the Fed before Bitcoin hits 100K? Which I think is slightly oxymoronic, because if you end the Fed, there's there are no more dollars. <laughs> but there was also this, this um, amazing observation uh, that you made that there are now uh, a million addresses with one Bitcoin or more in them or like with around one Bitcoin, right? And in, in each one of them. So that's one twenty-one-th of twenty-one-th, uh, is that a word? Uh, <laughs> of the entire Bitcoin supply. So, uh, well, what happens when the next million people want to do that? And yeah, that's good starting well, topic. Well, yeah, I mean, it was a statistic put out a few months ago probably from Glassnode or one of the analyst companies who are looking at on-chain data. 
And I thought it was like positive, right? Because there are people like develop a target. So they're, you know, the dollar cost averaging or they're buying as they sell things or get some money together and they're trying to get to a target of one Bitcoin and now there are a million people who got there or, or more, I think, is the metric. And so, you know, my initial thought was, well, one million is good. That That's bullish, but maybe we can do better. Like maybe we can get to 10 million in the future. And I was like, well, wait a minute that's probably not possible because there are only 21 million Bitcoin and many of them are not on the market, right? They've been cold bought and cold stored by people who've already held them for years. They're probably not selling. And the people who just, you know, saved up and managed to buy a whole Bitcoin, they're not going to sell it because that was a target they took some years to achieve, right? Yeah. So, you know, prospect of 10 million Bitcoins being bought, it may not be possible for at all, like for any amount of money, because, you know, as more people try to do that, the price will go up and then they won't be able to afford to do it. No, that's, uh, yeah, that's fascinating because like the way I see the volatility in, in Bitcoin is it's mainly because the, the, uh, what Raheem said yesterday, like the, it, it comes from the existing stock and not from the flow part of it. So not from the newly minted or newly mined Bitcoins. Uh, so the hard thing to to know though is what is that ratio like how much of the liquidity comes from the existing stock and how much is the newly mined bitcoins mm, yeah i mean there are a few like positive reinforcements so one is well they could be negative in a down sense as well is the uh, the miners so you know many of the miners are like prop miners people mining for themselves with a with a company uh, either public company or private company or individuals with you know a garage full of miners, so they're trying to actually keep the coins, right? But they are having to pay the power bills, and typically what they do is just spend all their money on miners, and then they sell a portion of the bitcoins to pay for the power bill on their mm -hmm. operation costs. And in a bull market, you know maybe they can keep 50, 70 percent of the coins they mine, and that's good. But in a, in a bear market. Uh, they may have to sell 70% of the coins just to pay the power bill, so they're not keeping much, right? But as soon as the price starts to go up faster than the hash rate can grow, then they stop sell they start selling less. And so they, they take coins that were like regularly being sold on the market, they take them off the market. And so it's kind of an effect, a bit like a halving, sort of a boost to, you know, it creates some price momentum, right? So if price goes up for mm. some random reason, some good news or like a string of positive media coverage or something like that, then the miners will stop selling as much and you'll and it'll boost the price further because now there's suddenly less coins for sale, right? So that's a kind of positive uh, reinforcement. So so do you expect a, a, a like Heinz catch-up type moment uh, during the next cycle where where there's not as much of a sell-off because there's just too few coins? Like, is there going to be a well, gradually then suddenly type moment? I mean, it looks a bit like it because the uh, dollar cost average army is just gradually, you know, it's like a tug of war game where they, <laughs> they keep buying every day and like the coins on exchange are just shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. Like if it gets too low, something explosive is going to happen somewhere, right? Because you know, yeah, you can't like if there are no if a coin if an exchange gets out of coins, you can't buy coins for any money. You've got to tempt somebody to 
deposit some coins that they intentionally took off exchange to cold store, like an yeah. intent for that to be some time. So the price might have to be quite high before they would do that. So, you know, I th it's interesting, like also the, it seems like, you know, there are different types of trading activity. One is what I call price formation. So it's people who are, you know, buying for the long term or mm -hmm. selling for tactical reasons where they, they don't have the money to buy them back, right? Like if they're a miner and they need to pay off some debts or they have to cover their power bills. So they're not buying them back tomorrow. And that, but then there's a lot of speculation and that's zero sum yeah. game and doesn't really change the price. It just adds liquidity. And apparently, um, the, like the price volume is is more in the derivatives like in the i mean in the sort of perpetual futures so in the high leverage area mm -hmm. these days right so that's that's actually relatively zero sum uh, i would say to typically right because it's high leverage hmm. so um yeah I've, I've heard a statistic from from glassnode that the not only are the the addresses with one coin or less in them growing in numbers, but also the addresses with 10,000 Bitcoins or more are shrinking in numbers. Hmm. Uh, so the, the way I see that, it is, this is a redistribution of wealth, really. Yeah, that sounds like the Gini coefficient is improving, huh? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a little hard to know for sure because, you know, some of the bigger wallets turn out to be exchange balances or mm -hmm. funds or custodians that represent many users. And also some of the more privacy conscious users will store their coins and break them up into, you know, hundreds of parts, right? So yeah, yeah. if they've got a hundred Bitcoin, they'll store like one Bitcoin a hundred times in different UTXOs. So there's an error, there's error on both sides, but still I think the public data is useful because it's an uh, indication of a generalized effect. Yeah, it's hinting at something. Like, right. So if you try to extrapolate this far ahead into the future, it's like two generations from now, like how big is the, how, how, how big of a portion of the total amounts of Bitcoins are going to be squandered away by this, you know, <laughs> reckless first generation of Bitcoiners that we are? Like, uh, are we going to be able to make up inheritance plans or like how many Bitcoins will there actually be available in say 2050 or 2000, like 20? Well, I mean, if they spend them, it's, uh, I mean, it's redistribution, right? Because they'll spend them at a business that will either keep them or sell them on the market, which, you know, gives somebody else an opportunity to buy. So I'm thinking more in boating accident terms, like how, how oh, reckless like are actual, people? Actual like backup failure, inheritance mechanism failure. Yeah, I mean, probably some. I, I think, you know, the technology is improving slowly. Um, but yeah, I mean, key management is, you know, not that easy, right? I mean, the mechanism is easy enough. You know, you write down the words, you do it on some kind yeah. of fireproof thing. Maybe you make multiple, like, so there's redundant backup or two or three or something, put them in different locations. But I think what's harder is um, intuition about where is a good place to store it that's still going to be there in like 50 years or 20 years, depending on how old you are, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, like the physical world suffers bit rot. People's memory is not as good as they imagine it is. So, mm -hmm. you know, and 
some people actually have accidents, you know, like they have yeah. a car crash or a boat, like literally they lose the, the backup or they forget the extra good password they made and didn't use for five years or something. So there can be losses too, yeah, which for sure. Yeah. So uh, from one thing to another, what what is Blockstream working on right now? What is the current projects there? Uh, lots of things. So we're working on um, Lightning. So we have this uh, protocol called Greenlight, which is a kind of client. So so when a, a Lightning wallet interacts with the Lightning network, <coughs> it um, you know it it does certain network things, right? It 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 syncs with a gossip network, which gives it a map of the network. It's a source routed protocol, so each client needs to know the full map of how to route to other people. And it it does various kinds of network information and to keep up with the network, understand which routes are reliable and things like that. So there's a certain amount of overhead. And you can think about that as the kind of analog of a um, a full node wallet, like Bitcoin Core, right? So yeah, you, you've got the full node kind of Bitcoin wallet and a full node Lightning wallet. And then there are sort of client server modes where you know you you trust a custodian and it, it runs the node or you have remote control no- wallets where you run a node and then your your phone wallet actually remote controls it so it's kind of remote control wallet but um so greenlight is a is another kind of protocol which is still self custodial you have your keys and you you know you verify the information you get from the network and so you know you know you have a good degree of security that somebody can't trick you into spending the money in a way you didn't expect, but it's sort of server assisted. And so it makes a much lighter client. The client doesn't need to sync as much data. It doesn't need as much storage. It can connect to the net, reconnect to the network after being offline for a few days and immediately transact with high reliability mm-hmm. and a normal, like full node type of lion, lightning wallet will sync a lot of data and analyze it before it can do that. So it makes a sort of. Lower bandwidth, lower storage, faster, more reliable lightning wallet, basically. Um, and so <clears throat> we've uh, you know worked with a few companies. So Breeze is adopting mm-hmm. that as a protocol, and we're integrating it into the Green Wallet too. And that's uh, available in a kind of early access beta program and should be live as well soon. So that's uh, interesting for uh, like recent developments in Lightning. Um, and from uh, Core Lightning, which is the implementation of Blockstream works on, and there are lots of open source contributors as well. Mm-hmm. And we have um, some kind of uh, user interface to control a node. So if you do run a Core Lightning node, there's a user interface to, you know, so you'd have to like command line, change the configuration, so that's the user interface for it. And that's been, uh, it was already on Umbral. And now it's available on Start9 as well, which is another kind mm-hmm. of Bitcoin yeah. full node where you yeah. can install apps. And so there's a new app, which is Core Lightning with a user interface. Um, and so there are a number of um, interesting developments between sort of this evolution of Lightning becoming a bridging protocol between other layer twos. So there's another company called uh, bolts, which is doing submarine swaps. So kind of trustless swap historically between a Bitcoin UTXO and a Lightning Channel Balance. So 
if you're a merchant and you're selling a lot of things and you've got you know a lot of Bitcoin stacked up on the Lightning Channel, you can swap it with Bolt. It will give you a UTXO mm -hmm. on chain, and then you'll get your capacity back, so you're ready to accept more payments. So you can use it to take capacity out, or you can do the opposite. As a user, you can use it to buy capacity, and so you pay them a UTXO and they add balance. And with the uh, sort of rapid increase in on-chain fees from you know the ordinals and the uh, inscriptors yeah, and all yeah. that stuff. It created a natural problem for them. You know, they were having trouble making these transactions complete yeah. and reliability. And so in a very short period of time, like in a week or two, they implemented a submarine swap between liquid Bitcoin, so on a liquid sidechain layer two, and lightning. So now you could rebalance an on-chain lightning channel using a different layer two Bitcoin, liquid Bitcoin. And it's it's cheaper, like the liquid is not as congested as the main chain. And it's faster because the blocks are one minute and two blocks is final. And so then they had a way for you to basically rebalance your lightning channel. So the same kind of behavior, but using liquid. And even after the fees, you know, the ordinals and inscriptors mm -hmm. uh, phase, like that fad faded, I guess, when the fees fell to normal levels, apparently they were saying that the uh, liquid Bitcoin swap remained like a significant proportion of their ongoing swap traffic. So people found that a convenient and faster way to rebalance channels once they got used to it, basically. So so when the wizards broke Bitcoin, so to speak, they, they actually helped. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's interesting because like, it seems that um, there's not so much proactive sort of work by service companies in Bitcoin, like exchanges and wallets and payment providers and swap mm -hmm. suppliers, they don't necessarily like proactively plan for what would happen if the fees increase in the future. But when they increase, they take some uh, sort of disaster avoiding action quickly, uh -huh. right? Yeah. And so they just look around for what's the quickest, the quickest fix and they'll look at, you know, recent technology developments or things they can do quickly. And this is one of them. So yeah, I mean, actually, you know, we can thank the inscriptions for that, which is they create a fee spike, hmm. which made Bitcoin more robust and uh, scalable, right? Because people adopted another kind of technology that offloads capacity draw on a main chain. It's it's uh, akin to the lockdowns driving the development of video conferencing apps. Mm -hmm. Like, <laughs> uh, well, here it's good because you know it, it means that. Now there's more UTXO space for cold storage and censorship resistant payments on the main mm -hmm. chain because, you know, if there are the same number of lightning channels, you can rebalance them without touching the main chain, which is great, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, so what about the latest fad, this BIP300 debate? And like, I, I won't go to, into the details of that very thing, but there there's, seems to be this eternal battle between... Uh, Bitcoin conservatism, if you will, and uh, Bitcoin progressivism. Mm -hmm. Like, so uh, have we already oscillated? Like, what, what, what's what's your angle on that? Uh, is it worth? Like, how much should we resist change, and how much should we push for change, and how hard is it to change it? Like, do you see Bitcoin ever hard forking again? I know there are some issues that need to be resolved. But yeah, I mean, I think technically most of these are soft forks and, and there's a surprising amount you can do with a soft fork. Like it turns out to be more powerful than people originally thought. But I think nevertheless, the question is, 
like historically, Bitcoin has resisted any change that has not got widespread technical consensus. Like all the technical people agree, it's the best approach to a given like problem or mm -hmm. a new feature, and that you know the ecosystem like it, i.e., the Bitcoin investors like it. Because the way I look at the the fork wars is, you know. I think a lot of people, like everybody from different viewpoints learned from it, I think, and weren't sure how that was going to resolve. Some people thought miners had a lot of control, and so they lobbied miners. It turned out they had very little control. Other people thought developers had control, but you know the solution didn't involve the developers. And really, it turned out that the market won. You know, So yeah. the people that, I mean, I look at like the labor theory of value fallacy, right? If, if I'm a gold bug and I'm buying gold, and some miners have a revolt over there and decide they're going to dig up some lead and expect me to pay for it because it costs money to dig out of the ground. I'm like, I don't, I don't care. I, don't, I want mm. gold. I don't care how expensive it was to mine the lead. I don't want it. And they're either going to go bankrupt or they're going to stop, right? So I think that is ultimately what happened with, you know, with this folk drama, which is that, you know, the miners and the people lobbying them were philosophically wanting to make a different trade-off for Bitcoin, sort of dilute Bitcoin's immutability and censorship resistance and like decentralized robustness, trade that off for some cheaper like on-chain transactions. Yeah. And the investors said, no, we don't, we don't want that. And they have a way to assay the digital gold, which they run a full node. And if you mine something they don't like, it's automatic. They don't even see it, right? And they certainly won't accept it. So, and they set the price. So, you know, the miners will just... It turned out, well, mine, whatever is uh, more profitable to mine when it comes to the crunch, right? Hmm. So now, um, I do think the the concept of Bitcoin immutability or ossification is important for long term because change implies risk, and you know you want to like reduce risk as more value piles up on Bitcoin and. Um, I mean, if you look at, let's say, other internet things like TCPIP, basic TCPIP version 4 hasn't changed materially in decades, right? And like it still interoperates and mm -hmm. it's essentially the same protocol. Um, and so, you know, ideally you'd want Bitcoin layer 1 to be like that after, you know, yeah, yeah. various limitations are, are improved. So the question is, what changes minimally need to be there to get to that point? And that's like not so clear because it's still in a bit of R&D. So, you know, um, I think, you know, like recent opcodes that's been discussed are like uh, APO. So something to make a, a more efficient variant of lightning possible, LN symmetry. And APO is any previous out. Um, another one is covenants. So they're sort of a, attached to use cases that, people think are useful, so. Um, and that the, the second one, the sort of covenant use case is attached to vaults. So mm -hmm. I think, and I think that is a, uh, a significant improvement in cold storage security, which means that if you have some Bitcoin in a safe and you know, you go away for a few days and when you come back, the safe's not there anymore. And, you know, somebody's taking it away and like cut it's it open or safe. something. Yeah. Now you need to be able to undo that transaction and like send the coin somewhere even colder, right? 
And so a vault enables you to do that mm-hmm. and to share the undo transaction with other people. So you could give it, you know, to your friends. It'd be kind of like a anti-kidnapping possibility also, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, if if the if you can give the cancellation instructions and pre-signed transactions to third parties, they can say, well, uh, you know, I can't reach the guy for a couple of days. I'm getting nervous. None of his friends have heard from him. So we're going to cancel all these transactions. And that will kind of... So that's the vault concept. So I think that is quite hard to do properly without, you know, like a covenant like opcode or Could, something. Couldn't it be done with time locks? Um, well, the thing is you need to sort of... So, I mean, the, the, You need the, another variable with like... Yeah, I mean, the effect you want is that you can devault, so I can take some coins out of a vault, and they're kind of stuck in a time lock situation where I can spend them with a key I have access to after a week, let's say. Um, and you know, if I have the keys, I could spend them in a different way, right? Mm-hmm. In the meantime, and so I need I need to like pre-sign it with some keys I don't have anymore. So then you have to kind of the, the be- I think the best you can do to simulate it is. You know, I have my cold wallet and I pre-sign all the UTXOs and then I delete the keys, which is kind of scary, right? Now now my cold now my wallet is a bunch of pre-signed transactions. And I have to back those up. So that's that's hard to do with a seed. I have to like back up a lot of data. So okay. it's it's kind of like adds its own risk. And it's a bit of a difficult trade-off because you are on the one hand trying to have a good backup of the keys until you use them. On the other hand, trying to be very sure you've deleted them so that you can't override your vault mechanism. So it's kind of a bit of a conflict. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to get to do it in a robust and like reliable way. Whereas a vault can do it because you can, you know, write a covenant allows you to write a sort of restriction, which is to say, well, I have the keys, but, you know, the coins are set so that I'm not able to spend them unless I spend them like this. And so you can add the, the vault, the devaulting as a restriction on the coins. And then you don't need to delete keys, basically. So that's the target. Okay. Yeah. So you can simulate it, but not not that well. And like covenants also, I mean, most Bitcoin opcodes are very low level. It's kind of like a machine instructions in a CPU. It doesn't do very much. Like each opcode is like, you know, push a number on a stack or add two numbers together or verify a signature. They're like very low level things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a vault is like, the, sorry, the the covenants are a bit like that. You know, it, it requires a certain structure in the output transaction. So it's a relatively simple thing. And so, of course, once you have it, you can you can do other things with it as well, right? All right. So, uh, yeah. So what separates um, Liquid from from these other proposed side chains and drive chains and whatnot? Like, what, what's, the, what's the key difference? Yeah, so Liquid is the sort of side chain you can build without new opcodes. So, and the way, the way it works is there's a federation. So a number of exchanges and service providers operating a hardware security module that is, you know, participating in the liquid network. So they're running a liquid full node, which is a kind of extended version of Bitcoin protocol. So like liquid sidechain is Bitcoin plus some extensions, basically, right? And then they... And and from the Bitcoin's perspective, the coins look like they're in a big multi-sig. Um, and these hardware security modules will, you know, accept coins in and let people claim them 
on liquid as liquid Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And if on the liquid side, somebody requests to peg them out, or like freeze them or burn them on liquid and request them back on the Bitcoin side, then the, uh, the hardware security modules will sign to follow that instruction and give it back to somebody on Bitcoin. So it has, um, you know, it's not as censorship resistant or like a, a not as good a place to do cold storage as Bitcoin, but for its kind of general purpose of like medium-sized transactions, short-term trading or transacting, but it has some advantages. So uh, for example, one of the extensions is uh, stable coins, so mm -hmm. you can have other assets. And so that's convenient because now you can do kind of limit orders and atomic swaps between you know different assets, whereas on Bitcoin there's only one asset, there's Bitcoin, mm -hmm. right? So you get that. Um, and so the difference is really that, you know, if something goes wrong on liquid, Bitcoin doesn't really know or care about it. All it sees is a multi-sig, mm. right? Whereas I think there are a few different types of, um, merge mine sidechain ideas. The original one involved fraud proofs. The idea there was with the merge mining, there would be, you know, the Bitcoin miners would be also hashing the uh, the sidechain. So they wouldn't like look at the sidechain to see if it's valid necessarily, but they would like put a timestamp on it or something, right? So the dedicated hashing power to it? Yeah, I mean it's merge mines. So you know they mine Bitcoin and then they put the checksum of the most recent sidechain block mm -hmm. into the main Bitcoin block. But it doesn't, you know, if if the sidechain like has a bug and forks like experimental or something, no. it won't fork the Bitcoin network. You know, they can ignore it. And uh, typically the sidechain could be, you know, the Bitcoin chain can be progressing forwards, processing transactions, adding new blocks, while the merge mining is doing a reorg, you know, like undoing a transaction or orphaning something that was a mistake on a sidechain. So there's not really any pressure on the sidechain to want to undo Bitcoin blocks just to undo something on a sidechain. Because that's, that's one of the concerns, right? It's mm -hmm. like they get a lot of economic activity on a sidechain and something goes wrong and then they desperately want to undo it. And then they come and try to plead with the miners to okay. pay them to undo okay. the whole chain, right? And you, you want Bitcoin to like never go backwards. Um, Please, you don't want people to shitcoin on Bitcoin, right? Yeah, well, I mean, you don't want to import the, the incentive to undo mistakes onto Bitcoin. It's just kind of mm -hmm. like Ethereum, right? They, yeah. they made some god-awful mess. They like screwed something up big time and the people affected financially were the insiders and so they like undid a bunch of stuff yeah and now there are two ethereums right and uh so you know if that was a bitcoin sidechain and not ethereum you know what would they have come in on and one that's tied to bitcoin like yeah. block height now would they and they wanted to undo it what would they do come to the miners and say could you please undo that i mean i think it's very difficult in bitcoin you know people oh, have yeah. tried that like a number of exchanges have got hacked for large amounts of money, like Bitfinex back in 2015, mm -hmm. they, they, you know, they resolved it now. Uh, they got, you know, they raised the money like a long time ago. So it's long resolved, but you know, at the time people were wondering, and more recently, last year or two, Binance had some hack and they came and talked to, you know, tried to talk to developers or miners to say, could you undo it? Like, I mean, not really, no. <laughs> you know, I mean, just, just imagine the chaos if it was undone, you know, like the, yeah, yeah. Just the accounting costs, like, because other things could get 
replayed or double spent if something was redone. It's it's not remotely worth it. To, no, no. So it so, doesn't make any sense. So, so it would mess with the incentive structures, basically. Yeah. yeah. So there's one concern, and, a, and then the drive chain. So the the original sidechain is like merge mined, and it and it presents a compact proof to Bitcoin. So it adds a soft fork to Bitcoin. This is the concept, right? To mm-hmm. to verify a proof that most of the merge mining work, like that there's a certain amount of merge mine work on the sidechain that approves this withdrawal request. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't verify the whole sidechain, but it can see that, you know, there's a lot of merge mining that seems to be saying that the miners agree that this guy should be able to withdraw this coin. And then there's a time lock, kind of like with Lightning, where somebody else can sort of provide an even more work, like a, a higher block height, mm-hmm. with something that contradicts the first one. And then they can cancel the withdrawal. It's kind of like a reactive security like Lightning. So that was one version. And a drive chain is a simplified version. So it uh, has no fraud proofs. It just says, well, they make the pegout slow. And so if the users see coins being stolen by a big conspiracy of miners, they have three months or six months to do something about it. And if you think about it, the the scenario is that there's a conspiracy between most of the miners. So now the users, you know, Bitcoin users and investors can't really get the miners to help prevent that because the miners are already in the conspiracy, mm-hmm. right? So now yeah. Bitcoin basically has to undertake a UASF-like situation mm-hmm. to set to like sort of, you know, say that to the miners, look, we're going to block this this theft. And if you try to do it anyway, you know, we change the code. If you change that, if you do it anyway, you're going to fork off the network and we're not going to honor your coins. So don't do it. And that, that was kind of like what happened with the SegWit activation. Mm-hmm. And it was a very dramatic and kind of scary thing with some a fair bit of risk. So people don't want that kind of risk, right? And so that's that's the challenge for drive change. Like the the sort of disincentive to steal is kind of... Uh, an expensive exercise in risk terms mm-hmm. for the main chain. And people don't like risk on the main chain. So that's that's the problem, I think. Like I people know. wanting to opt into things is generally fine, but if it if it creates a cost or a risk, then if it starts to be yeah. undesirable. Sounds way easier to just not tamper with it. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's interesting. I mean, I think it's always interesting to discuss ideas because by discussing them, people like invent new things or change their perspective. Because I think before like the last few weeks of drive chain discussion, people would have said they prefer hash rate controlled sidechains to federated sidechains mm-hmm. like Liquid and Rootstock. But I think if you ask them now, they'll change their, they will swap their view. So now they're like, actually, the federated sidechain is much less likely to create a problem for Bitcoin and it's much less likely that the you know, the collection of dozens of exchanges would have a conspiracy and try to steal the pegged coins because we know who they are. Mm. It would involve a massive conspiracy and there'd be legal problems and stuff like that, right? Whereas if miners do it, it's kind of anonymous um, Mm. and it's more difficult to do anything about it. So you don't know who to blame, for example, right? Um, So I think even the discussion changed the perception and like... It's instructed to look at what people don't like about it and why, because maybe there's a way to like make a safer mm-hmm. type of sidechain. So, so 
how big a part of the discussion and how much influence does the infighting on Twitter have on Bitcoin's development, like the ATIQ people and all the stuff uh, that we're talk we talk about and like. Uh, um, well, I mean, I think there's like a mixture of people. So, you know, some people will just react like, don't change Bitcoin. It's like sort of more philosophical, yeah, the, right? Like based on conservative. Uh, you know, well, I mean, it's it's true actually. I I uh, went to some kind of like private meeting, like a, a bunch of like investors and a few tech people, just like general discussion for a weekend kind of thing, some years ago, and like. A question I asked for the like Bitcoin holder or investor or fund manager type of people is like, well, what features would you value most mm -hmm. from the technical side for Bitcoin? And their answer was surprising, which was like, just don't break it. Yeah, yeah. That was the number one feature, right? And so that's very interesting, right? Because like, they didn't even care about Lightning, actually. It's like, it's, oh, yeah. it is. it's like payments. No, they care about investment. Oh, that's so, good to hear. So, like, if, if there's something, like, about key management or vaults, so like, okay, like, now I'm listening, but it's, like, about micropayments, I don't really care about it. So, mm. now I think, like, really, you want a bit of both because, you know, ultimately, the value proposition of Bitcoin is the ability to, you know, do the censorship-resistant payments, and we can get more of those by using something like Lightning. So, if we can make Lightning better, that also helps the kind of value proposition. Mm-hmm. And it also frees up space for cold storage, which is good too. So, yeah. All right. So, so what's this uh, this unavoidable bug that is in the code that needs to be fixed for the hard fork in like 2050 or 2090? Or uh, what, I mean, what is that called? I, I, for I the name escapes. 2106? Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Uh, yeah, I think, I think it's kind of like, you know, the year 2000 bug. Yeah. Like some counter wraps around because it's a 31, it's a 32, signed 32 bit integer, right? So, yeah. so like, but I don't think it's an issue because it's like, you know, so many decades away that you can just make a technical hard fork that was fixed, you know, like five decades before it could become an issue. And then nobody's running like five decades old code and nobody notices, right? Or something like that. So I but think it's very simple to fix. Okay. But it's like a technical curiosity that, like, well, we can't fix that with a hard oh, fork. Okay. So everyone is sort of relying that we will fix that just because of the sheer amount of time that we have yeah. to fix it. I mean, I think I think the thing is, if you make some incompatible change, it's very hard to coordinate. That everybody would upgrade, and then nobody would accidentally like get left off the network or something. But you know, if it's coming in like hundred years, okay, like they're not even in a rush to fix it, right? Because you know, as long as you can fix it so far ahead that it's implausible that anybody would still be running that old software, mm -hmm. then it's pretty easy to fix. So how are you enjoying this episode so far? Before we dive back in, first a little bit about our sponsors. First up, Wasabi Wallet, the privacy by default, open source, non-custodial Bitcoin wallet with CoinJoin built in. It's the easy to use, comprehensive, affordable way to make your coins private. And the best part is they've been making huge improvements to the app. They're really focusing on the user experience, adding advanced features for power users. They just keep getting better. You send your coins to your Wasabi wallet and they get combined with loads of other coins using the Wabi Sabi protocol. So they're private on the other end. Your tracks are covered so you can work on expanding your freedom footprint without worrying about your privacy. So check out wasabiwallet.io and download Wasabi today. Next up, Orange Bill app the Bitcoin social layer app for iOS and Android, where you can stack friends who stack sats. 
You can connect with your favorite Bitcoiners on the app, make local connections, and even connect with Bitcoiners around the world. And a big feature on Orange Pill app is Vents. You can see what's going on in your area and connect with Bitcoiners around you. I've been to multiple Orange Pill app events and they brought Bitcoiners together from all over. The best part is, you know it's high signal. There's no spam on Orange Pill app because everyone pays to be there. It's just $3 a month. So download Orange Pill app on Apple or Android and get connected to the Bitcoin social layer. Next up, our new sponsor, The Bitcoin Way. Their mission is to onboard, educate, and remove barriers to taking self-custody of your Bitcoin. They cover everything from cold wallets to nodes, no KYC Bitcoin purchases, inheritance planning, payments, and more. Whether you're new to Bitcoin or you're an experienced Bitcoiner looking to expand your freedom footprint, or you know someone who this sounds perfect for, the Bitcoin Way has something for you. They have a skilled team, well-versed in the Bitcoin space, and their goal is to make all the complexities of Bitcoin as straightforward as possible for everyone. And the best part is you can get started with a free 30-minute call with their team. Go to thebitcoinway.com contact for more info. All right, back to it. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and brush your teeth. So how is Liquid doing? Like, how is Liquid adoption doing? Like, how, how, what's the developments? Like, well, what do you see there and what do you predict in the future? Yes, I mean, unlike, uh, it's, it's mostly kind of organic. So I guess like a little bit analogous to Lightning, there are different types of startups involved, right? So people are building like the Lightning Protocol, and then the LSPs and then, you know, applications and games and things like that. So there's that kind of thing happening with Liquid with multiple startups building on it. And, you know, some of them are organic and just you, you never hear about them. And then they have a product mm -hmm. that's new and it's in market and now people are talking about it and using it. So a number of things like that have happened over the last year. So, I mean, one is uh, SideSwap, which mm -hmm. is a Liquid wallet uh, and um, a kind of... Uh, non-custodial central order book. So you can, from your wallet, you can uh, place a limit order to buy Bitcoin like below this price. And you you sort of sign part of the transaction and you give it to the server through the app. And now um, you can switch your phone off or your desktop off or what have you. And somebody can come along and decide they want to sell it to you and they'll give their partly signed part to the server and the server just combines them, takes mm -hmm. its commission and sends it to liquid chain to sell. And so it's a kind of a trustless limit order. So it's a way to do trading or buying or selling without custodial risk. And actually they're integrating hardware wallet support. So you could even a, you know, you could use a web experience to like click on the prices you want and you scan a QR code and then you approve the transaction on your hardware wallet. Say, you know, yeah, I want to buy Bitcoin at that price and I have some liquid tether in my hardware wallet. And when it, when it transacts, it basically funds move between two hardware wallets. So it's an extremely safe way to do trade without the kind of, you know, Mt. Gox, uh, FTX, uh, Quadrigo, all the kind of exchange custody risk. So mm -hmm. that is very interesting. And you know, they even have, um, so on Liquid, there are two types of assets. There are like Liquid Bitcoin and Liquid Tether, things that are just peer-to-peer -peer transferable. And then there are sort of, there's an option to make an asset a security. It's called AMP, uh, a managed asset. And so um, the, the thing there is you can't like receive it or send it to somebody who is not like, 
whitelisted. And the way you get whitelisted is you enroll like uh, with an exchange or something, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, the, the the way that you you interact with it is, is like that. But once you are whitelisted, it's curious because now you're transacting something which is like a licensed registered security, but you're transacting it in a very Pittsburgh feel, right? I can like, you know, send somebody one hundredth of a share as a gift, or they can like, you know, give me 10 euros for it in person and I can send it to them, or I can like agree an OTC price and mm-hmm. swap it with Sideswap, or I can put it on the market on Sideswap, all in a sort of permissionless way but still like compliant with securities laws because of the whitelisting. So it's a kind of you know, novel kind of merge of unlikely things, right? Which feels like very permissionless, but like behind the scenes permissions. And it's very simple from the blockchain, like from a liquid blockchain point of view, because all it sees is a multi-sig. But, but, but all these things, aren't they like, these are sort of bridges between the Bitcoin world and the fiat world, as I see Yeah, them. that one is. I mean, another, another example is, I mean, there are, there are lots of, there are some like, startup derived things and there are some user behavior derived things so one user behavior derived thing is dollar cost averaging so we came across users who were uh dollar cost averaging on liquid because the fees are low mm-hmm. and if they're you know buying five dollars a time like if you withdraw from an exchange is expensive right mm-hmm. and so they're dollar cost averaging on liquid and then they'll get to a to a target you know like tenth of a bitcoin or whatever the threshold is and they'll they'll take it off onto cold storage on the main chain and they'll do it again. So it's a kind of way to do something frequently and like amortize the cost of going to a UTXO. So it's like one kind of use case. And the other one was the um, the bolts, like liquid atomic swaps. So sort of connecting liquid and lightning, which was also like organic, right? I mean, a startup decided they had a problem and like within a week or two, they had a solution. So hmm. it's quite interesting things. Um, and, you know, they're continuing sort of people issuing different assets on it, <clears throat> uh, more wallets, adding liquid support. So there's a new one that was announced at this conference called uh, Wallby, which is a kind of a super app. So it's a Bitcoin wallet and it's a liquid wallet and it's a rootstock wallet. Mm-hmm. And I think they're adding Lightning too. So it's kind of all Bitcoin related layer twos and, and main chain in a single wallet. Uh, Green is a bit like that because it has... You know, it has liquid Bitcoin and Bitcoin, and more recently we have the beta integration of Lightning as well. So kind of all three. Mm-hmm. But the Wallby Super App is even more, right? Because it includes Rootstock and plans to go between them. But but all of these these things, like, what, do they do they exist post hyper Bitcoinization? Like, if in a in a fully Bitcoinized world, is there a use case for these things still? Uh, yeah, potentially. I mean, I think the you know, the layer twos are sort of a bit like TCP IP, right? So they're sort of specialized protocols on top for different like application domains. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, if, if Lightning is specialized for retail payments, then Liquid is specialized for like maybe trading, has some additional confidentiality because of confidential transactions. And I think another configuration that might come about in the future is because Core Lightning works on top of Liquid as well. So you can have like Liquid Bitcoin channels. And then instead of rebalancing Bitcoin Lightning channels with Liquid, you can have Liquid Bitcoin channels, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, for the risk, if if the amounts or that are involved in Lightning are very retail, like not, not huge amounts of money, right? Like maybe, 
you know, the phone is more expensive than the, than the mm -hmm. Bitcoin on it kind of situation, yeah. then maybe it makes a good deal of sense to anchor lightning channels in liquid, which is kind of layer 1.5. And then that frees up even more space from the main chain for cold storage because you don't get all of the lightning, you know, transaction anchors and stuff like that. And I think liquid, you know, liquid's uh, capacity is sort of similar to Bitcoin's because you know, the blocks are 10 times as fast because every minute they're the same size, but the confidential transactions are about 10 times bigger because of all the mm -hmm. uh, crypto stuff. Um, but, you know, I think that would be a, an interesting trade-off and the sort of thing that somebody might, you know, like Bolstered, somebody might adopt in, you know, a, a future prolonged fee spike or something, right? Yeah, your, your, your panel about uh, when 100K, you know, the nice provocative uh, title, lots of bullish energy in there in terms of uh, the time frame and uh, when the fiat price is going to go up. But what do you see at the moment as the biggest long-term threat to Bitcoin? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, for people who are involved, you know, 2013, 14, 15, you know, banks didn't want to hear about Bitcoin. Like if, if you were a business development person sent to talk to banks, they would tell you before you go into the room, don't use the word Bitcoin, right? <laughs> and that all changed, you know, then every bank on the planet had a blockchain R&D lab, right? And, mm. you know, come forward a few more years and they're all vying to provide Bitcoin related financial products. And like, so I think in that same kind of time frame, like 2013 to 2015, a lot of people were quite worried and even before about you know regulatory bans like you know china bans bitcoin but like thinking well maybe europe and the us will also ban bitcoin and that that would be a risk right but i think you know that risk has receded a lot because you know the regulators have regularized you know bitcoin as property legally um I think a lot of technical risk has receded, like, you know, Bitcoin's quality assurance has improved, the rate, you know, the, the changes have become more conservative and it got through the block size wars and showed that, you know, the investors ultimately were able to enforce the mutability despite mm -hmm. like, you know, a lot, a big array of financial interests wanting to change it for like, you know, uh, the economic benefit of startups, I guess, ultimately. Um, so I'm not sure, like, I think the risks have receded on, on most fronts. So I'm not really seeing like, you know, a big threat. Um, so I'm not sure. Yeah. It, se it seems like, you know, I mean, of course, uh, a different kind of threat, I think, or risk could be that Bitcoin succeeds, but emphasizing the investment asset use case and losing some sort of momentum on bearer censorship resistant mm -hmm. self-ownership of keys. And I do think it's like potentially a problem if too big a proportion of Bitcoin's economic base is held by ETFs with like mm -hmm. corporate lawyers and fund managers for reducing duties and stuff like that. So, you know, I mean, ultimately the value is the, the use case, like the digital gold, the cold storage, the ability to spend, that's the thing that banks can't compete with. So, you know, the banks offering financial products is kind of like 
you know, VCs buying or investors buying internet stocks because they thought mm-hmm. the internet, the permissionless chaos of the internet would be popular. You know, they might not have liked the permissionless chaos, but they could see they could make money from it, right? So you don't want the guys that are riding a trend to like break the trend or like erode the permissionlessness, right? But this is a slightly more philosophical question. Does we can institutions actually own Bitcoin though? Because like not your keys, not your coins and custodial, like the real possessor of the Bitcoins is some guy or some guys with a multisig. Yeah. So, so how, how do you see that? Like the relationship with between ownership and possession in the future and like, is, well, Bi- is Bitcoin, is owning Bitcoin more than just keeping a secret? Like, how do you see that? I mean, it's out? certainly an indirect and more fragile ownership claim, right? Yeah. So, you know, if you, if you assume there are, um, very much more credible, like custodians, like, I mean, already Fidelity is a, I think has a custodian service. So it's probably the, one of the highest tier, but there are other like fairly high tier uh, established financial players that provide Bitcoin custody for a fee to corporations, but it's still indirect, right? Because, you know, if you're an individual and you can get access, if they sell to individuals or you're a company and something happens, like a court makes a judgment against you or law enforcement yeah. makes a judgment against you, then the custodian doesn't listen to you anymore. They listen to the third party yeah, that yeah. freezes your assets, right? So then, well, did you really own them? Mm-hmm. Well, kind of, you you know, you you had a a right to request them, which they have discretion to refuse if there's some overriding claim, right? So yeah, you don't really have full possession of them anymore. That's that's the the risk. yeah, and 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 also if if a custodian feels threatened by a government or whatever, uh, I mean the the one guy or the three out of five guys can can just bus off and go somewhere else and live their lives <laughs> without them ever knowing. Yeah, I mean, I guess the um, probably the big custodians have, you know, because they are custodying other things which are hard to undo, mm-hmm. like maybe artwork or like physical vaults for valuables, and they have developed over you know centuries, yeah. like quite good. Uh, what do you call it? Like cross checks and governance and procedures yeah, yeah. to make sure that it's difficult for like a small group of insiders who get corrupt because because banks do have like tellers that go rogue and like yeah, yeah. people that try to steal. So they try to make a lot of uh, cross checks and controls in there to catch it early or to prevent it without like a huge collusion or something like that. Still, if, if this, um, you know, catch up effect thing happens and Bitcoin a hundred X's. Yeah. Like, so all of a sudden those 10 Bitcoins are worth more than that. Right, Mona Lisa type pen. Like, well, I mean, that's that's a case for for like the vault situation. I mean, the the smart contract kind of script vault, which is that you know the day to day operations, the people operationally in control, you know, can devault and then spend money out of the devault, or maybe manage a, a kind of warm wallet. Mm-hmm. But you know, there will be other people, a much wider array of people, potentially including people with coins in the custody who can like blow the whistle like hey these coins are moving and nobody approved them and have like a week's time or something to cancel it and mm-hmm. send it you know somewhere much colder which is like maybe extremely inconvenient to access and you know that that would be impractical for a day-to-day service but is a fallback if something weird happens right 
but but that's not in place now. Like no, I, it isn't. I mean, it, but I think that's one of the reasons you we probably should try to build them, like either using the pre-signed transactions or with some kind of vault. I mean, some kind of covenant technology to build them. But we, as in. Well, I mean, like people who build stuff, like startups, <laughs> okay. technologists, yeah, yeah, yeah. companies. Yeah. So there's a market. Uh, yeah, you foresee a market for that those kind of services. Well, I mean, as, as somebody who's like you know being involved in like the technical part of custody and thinking. So if you actually do something, then you start to think much more clearly and pragmatically about the risks. Yeah, yeah. You know, so if you think even on a personal case, you know, you you make steel backup and you put it in a home safe, and then you think, well. You know, what if I went away for the weekend and somebody swapped the safe for yeah, one yeah. that looks the same and I don't know it's for a while and then I find I don't know the code and I'm pretty sure I haven't forgotten the code and then I realize they've swapped the... Or they just open the safe and look at the words. Like. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, like, that's assuming they cut. I mean, I think typically consumer safes are actually not that good. So a skilled safe cracker can open them anyway, like bypass it. But even if you assume it's good quality and they can't bypass it, they could, you just take it and swap it, and maybe you don't notice, right? So if you start thinking about some of those things, then it's, uh, you know, the, the physical backup could be taken. That's the problem, right? Mm -hmm. So what would you do about that? Well, you need to be able to cancel it, and then you need this kind of digital vault. And then if you had that extra technology, you would have an answer. You know, you've got security cameras everywhere, and you, and you see that it happened. Now, if it was if it was today, it's too late. You saw them get stolen, so what? They've cleared on a chain and they're gone, right? And you yeah. can't undo them. But if you have a, a vault process, yeah, you can undo it. You have a week to like take it back, right? So, so but but like I mean, steel plates and all whatnot are they're, they're sort of the norm now. But but really, what is it? it's just your imagination that that counts when come when it comes to uh, storing Bitcoin. I mean. A private key is a, a, a set of characters, and a, a seed phrase is a couple of words. So, say you hide them in a poem, uh, and you store that poem in three different locations in three different countries, and nobody even knows that it is a seed phrase, and it's right. impossible to tell. I mean, there it, it's literally just your imagination setting these boundaries for what's possible, and uh, yeah. I, I think we. we the, the Bitcoin space is sort of like, okay, this is the norm now where we're doing steel plates and we're, where it's blatantly obvious that the Bitcoin are there because it's a steel plate with seed, a seed phrase on it. So like, right, yeah. it's not hidden at all. It's like, it's like a gold bar. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, so, it is. Yeah. So, uh, so how do you see that? Do you see like, uh, other developments in the, like Bitcoin storage space? Like are people using their imaginations enough? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, I mean, certainly people have tried lots of different strategies, including, you know, having a password and memorizing it or splitting things up and storing them in different locations or trying to hide things very effectively. Um, and I guess there's always a trade-off between, you know, hiding it too well mm -hmm. so that, you know, if you have an accident, then people can't find them or something. Mm -hmm. And that's probably happened a couple of times in like, in the last few years to people who unfortunately had an accident and people couldn't figure out like the backup strategy. Or I think the other thing that can happen is people can get like very creative and make some kind of complicated trail to solve for themselves and then forget parts of it because they didn't try it. So I think it turns out that people's memory is a little bit fallible if they don't frequently exercise yeah. it for a few years. So I think that's that's a trade-off, right? So, and and I think for companies like somebody doing like a custodial service, 
it's a little bit more complicated because they have to uh, manage the change of staff. So somebody leaves for another job and you need this cursor to remain. So you can't, you can't like place, you have to make it somehow physical so that, you know, there are enough controls that you can like have somebody leave as a document is standard and that person doesn't take part of the secret with them sort of thing or something, right? Hmm. Well, I think the only other thing I've kind of got on my mind is is with some talks about threats and and uh, things that could go wrong. Uh, what are you seeing positively about how Bitcoin is doing in the world? Is it is it is it doing the thing that you thought when you first heard about it? Does that make sense? Yeah. Has your uh, how much has your view changed over the years of what this thing is? I mean, um, my view is, is, is basically the same since, like, I don't know, 1995 or something with electronic cash, right? So, you know, David Chalmer developed this kind of cryptography for electronic cash in 1985 in his PhD thesis. And he's still around in the crypto space, but he's an older guy now, right? He's a very clever cryptographer. But I think in the mid-90s, there was a startup in the Netherlands that David Chalmer started to you know, commercialize and make available electronic cash using this technology. And effectively in today's terminology, you would call it like a stable coin because that was like, you know, not dollar denominated, but euro or something, right? And, um, but yeah, so I think the thing that like at least the cypherpunks thought was exciting about that kind of technology was the bearer finality of it, right? That it's, you know, it's digital, but it's physical too. Like I, I own it and only I own it. Nobody can take it off me. Nobody can censor me. Nobody can prevent me transacting. And maybe nobody can even kind of detect sort of who paid who because it, because that technology was extremely private. Right. And so to, to those people, that was extremely exciting. And then the concept of smart contracts involving bearer finality was extra interesting because it meant that a contract was final. You know, if if there's a if there's a smart contract that says you know you get paid when this event happens or when this task is completed, and it's very like it's machine verifiable, then the fact that the payment is very final means the contract is final. So you can't you know you can't dispute it. So mm -hmm. it's sort of extremely efficient, low cost, sort of um, decentralized, reputation based commerce on the internet kind of in a, you know, in a gray market, fully permissionless and global and anonymous, right? So we thought that was really interesting for we, like the people on the cypherpunks list, really interesting. And like Bitcoin realized it, right? So, you know, here we are and it's, it's working. I mean, it's not quite as private as that tech was, but it's, um, that was, that had a, a side effect of being centralized and vulnerable mm -hmm. to that company yeah. shutting down. And then the central database was lost and it was all gone, right? So, yeah, I mean, I think the reaction to DigiCash uh, winding down and seeing that fail if you held some of the coins was, wow, that central point of failure is really bad. It needs to be decentralized. Like, how would you do that? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, there's there all the discussions in the, I guess, late 90s, early 2000s yeah. about, you know, how, how could you possibly build a decentralized electronic cash? And like, there were, there were things that sound like vaguely similar to Bitcoin, like about mining and proof of work and smart contracts and, you know, Byzantine general's problem, all these discussions, but nobody figured out how to do it. And so Bitcoin really uh, made it happen. So yeah, I think it's great. Like, <laughs> you know, and like, I think that it uh, changes people's viewpoint who come in, like, you know, the attraction 
of the kind of pure mathematical elegance of having a piece of digital property that's yours and can't be taken from you, can't be eroded, can't be seized, can't be you know, frozen, cancelled, undone. It's like super cool, right? People get their head around that. Of course, that it would like, be here if it wow, wasn't. Wow, that's amazing, right? <laughs> and so people are just like, it's quite interesting. I went to Parelni Polis oh, yeah. uh, in Prague, and um, they have a coffee shop in the uh, in the ground floor, Yeah, and you have to buy with Bitcoin. And so, you know, we were talking to some people after the event they organized, and they were like, yeah, their first interaction with Bitcoin was they came into the coffee shop to buy a coffee, and they knew nothing about Bitcoin. They just wanted a coffee, right? But after they learned about it, they got like very philosophically interested. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. So it's it, so basically, it doesn't matter what angle you came from it, like whether it's a friend or as an investment or as a you know casual payment. Like just how it works is super interesting. And like you yeah. know the mind virus that keeps everybody super enthusiastic for years and years. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about it. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So. Oh, um, what was that? I, I just had something on my tongue. Yeah, yeah. About ownership. I mean, since since we've established that owning Bitcoin is nothing but keeping a secret, how do you prove ownership? Like in in a ethical sense. I mean, of course, the legal systems are flawed and whatnot, and they can prove all quote unquote prove all sorts of things that aren't necessarily true. But like from a strict, you know information technology perspective how do you really prove that someone owns a bitcoin since it's just information in someone's head at the end of the day is it, is it even possible well i mean i suppose a close analog is if if they're willingly proving they could sign a message or spend to themselves yeah. and that would be pretty convincing right yeah, I can think of a case where that would have been uh, <laughs> the right thing to do to prove you're a certain person, but <laughs> but it never happened. Uh, but but still, if they refuse to and, and just use the boating accident excuse or whatnot, like how? Yeah, I mean, there's nothing you can do to prove it, right? I mean, it, it even happens in some unrelated to Bitcoin court cases where people have encrypted hard drives yeah. and, you know, there's some investigation, uh, their equipment is seized and the court demands that they decrypt the data and they refuse. Yeah. And like basically after some kind of prescribed legal limit, they have to let them go because no decryption, no evidence, presumption yeah, yeah, yeah. of innocence and like some kind of prescribed legal limit on holding people for contempt of court. If they refuse, you have to let them go, right? So, I think that's that's kind of a precedent, right? If you if you can't prove it, like, what are you going to do, right? Yeah, and even like if I if I do an on chain transaction to obviously buy a cup of coffee, and there's a note in it saying well, you bought a cup of coffee and you bought it here, and at this point, like, still to me, even that is impossible to actually prove that that I made that transaction. It could have been anyone else keeping the same secret, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Yeah, so. Well, I think it's important to keep identity out of the blockchain. Yeah. And, you know, some people got excited about uh, digital IDs and, like, having kind of KYC certificates on chain and uh, Ethereum even got on the 
train, what was this? The uh, soul-bound tokens, I guess mm-hmm. another word for a digital certificate, basically make a lot of sense to me. But I think you want to keep that stuff as far away from the blockchain as possible because banks particularly, you know, the technologies that come from the banking world, they're used to the concept that the, um, you know, people could lose their online login. And so as long as they have, you know, their passport and a utility mm-hmm. bill, that individual is the owner of the asset. And so they they kind of just gravitate by instinct and momentum to wanting to like put identity stuff in yeah, a blockchain yeah. and make it a condition of the spending, right? It's like, well, the guy with this passport or the guy yeah, with yeah. this fingerprint or something. And I'm like, no, no, like it should be, it's bearer. It's a bearer asset. Like it's it's a bad idea to put identity anywhere near the blockchain. And I'm like, so I don't even like people making decentralized IDs because if they're in a blockchain, then sooner or later, somebody's going to use it as a spending condition. So like, so like keep it yeah, away yeah. from the blockchain if you ask me. So in the same vein, like, well, do you think we'll see CBDCs playing out like as a real thing? I mean, are are they already? Like, what are we living in? What are we looking forward to? I mean, that, that is um, dystopian, dark stuff, isn't it? It seems like it the uh, the... So if Europeans and the American like central bankers are getting FOMO for, you know, the dystopian Chinese yeah. kind of social credit score, freeze your money, like, you know, uh, disfavor you financially if you don't like conform kind of thinking. And, you know, I think they kind of want the uh, um microeconomic control, right? So, you know, they printed so much money that it kind of lost control of inflation and, and you like the levers they have to influence inflation are super indirect, right? So yeah. they they put money into the system and it just flows into banks that lend less or something. Yeah. And so, you know, if they could reach into your pocket and say, yeah. well, you've got to spend this money in a week or we're going to take it back, you know, well, you're only allowed to spend it in this way, they would love that because it'd be kind of like microeconomic control, but it's like extremely dark, uh, kind of concept so i'm just hopeful that democracies will just like say no (laughs) yeah the term programmable money is wrong like programmable money is the same thing as programmable people that's what it is right because people use money like it's just us at the end of the day is bitcoin going to help us avoid that yeah well i mean i think there are some countries which have tried to phase out cash like to go cashless or even some European countries that have placed legal limits on cash transactions mm-hmm. or taken like 500 euro notes out of circulation. And other countries that are still heavily cash, like Malta is very heavily cash, Switzerland is very heavy cash. But Switzerland has like a thousand franc note, which is worth like double that or something. And they use it, you know, like Switzerland has, I think so many thousand franc notes that there is like about six or 7,000 francs worth of thousand franc notes or like six or seven notes per man woman and child in the whole country so just imagine the amount of like high denomination currency they have uh floating around in companies individuals it's very cash like outlook um but yeah so if they try to outlaw cash like by policy and regulations then bitcoin is a natural outlet right Mm -hmm. well we have global bearer bitcoin electronic cash so what do we care i mean we still care that you don't like make uh, money, a dystopian, like fiat money, a dystopian control point, but we have a an outlet, a safety valve, which is we can use the uh, bearer Bitcoin, and there's basically nothing they can do about it. 
Yeah, like the um, banning of cash in in Sweden or like going cashless was at least played a part in why I made the decision to leave. And like mm-hmm. the, the cash is much much more common in Spain and then yeah, and in, in yeah the Mediterranean countries in general. Yeah, I mean, I was always uh, thinking like even before like Bitcoin existed that you should really use cash, even if it's inconvenient, on principle any way mm-hmm. you can. Just so that, you know, governments don't get the idea that, well, everybody's using debit cards anyway, we could probably phase it out, right? So if, you know, if I use cash for like hotel, for a taxi, for a train, for anything, um, if a lot of people do that, it becomes difficult for them to uh, change. Uh, Another thing about Sweden that I brought up with all the other guests this this weekend is is that I I, uh, talked to... Christian Ander, the, the CEO of BTCX, if you're familiar with that exchange, it's the oldest Swedish exchange and one okay. of the oldest in the world. Uh, so uh, uh, over, all the, um, over the years, they've had over 300,000 customers. And there's another big exchange as well. And of course, there's some overlap. And But then there's also like people buying from international exchanges and getting their Bitcoin some other way. So if you assume that... Uh, half a million Swedes have Bitcoin or have access to Bitcoin somehow. That's, that's quite a lot, right? That, that's quite a, that's 5% of the population. That's 10 million people in the yeah. country. So so when I think about that, it's like, okay, so 5% of the population have the uh, ability to pay other people in Bitcoin right now. And the entire population has the ability to receive them because right. yeah, within a minute. Yeah. So uh, to me, the, the conclusion I draw is like, this economy is already here. It's just below the surface. And it's just, if shit, shit hits, hits the fan even harder than it has, like then it's just bound to pop out and just happen. Like, yeah. how do you see that? Is there, are, are we close to this boiling point or like? Yeah, I mean, I was, I was describing it as um, a bootstrap threshold where... Even like where there's enough people that own Bitcoin, that even if all of the sort of KYC official businesses had to stop immediately, mm-hmm. that it would keep going with the gray market. Because, you know, it's kind of like marijuana or something. You now, you know, if, if, if enough people do that, you can, you know, ask a friend of a friend, like within a social network, mm-hmm. you can find somebody to trade Bitcoin. Right. So, yeah. and that's, that's clearly the case now, right? You know, you, you know, you're, you're in Bitcoin, but if you're not in Bitcoin, you probably know who to ask for who might know somebody who you could trade some Bitcoin for cash. Yeah. It's uh, the Kevin Bacon number equivalent. Like, so I think like clearly it's bootstrapped and like potentially even internationally, right? Because yeah. there are like unofficial international swap markets yeah. for delivering cash, right? And that's the experience I have with traveling around to all these conferences and meetups and stuff. Is like that it's it's still small everywhere. Then you have to take into account that not every Bitcoiner wants to go to a Bitcoin meetup or a Bitcoin conference. It's just a small portion of us that do these right. things. So and but even those things are they're small, but they're everywhere, literally everywhere. So yeah, insanely bullish. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think the the million. Uh, UTXO or like yeah, full coiner like, situation is like insanely bullish because you think like, well, 
could we get to 10 million? It's probably not like economically possible. No. Like, could we get to 2 million? I don't know. Like the price might get pretty high before that could happen. Right. So like, it yeah. seems like we're not that much more adoption without any like institutional buying or US spot ETFs or anything for just, you know, things to get crazy. Right. Weird. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's not, it's not that you double amount, the <laughs> double the amount of whole coiners and price doubles. Yeah, it's exponential, right? Yeah, it's much worse. Yeah, and and it's getting worse over time because the um, by worse you mean better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, better. Like like I mean the the uh, the liquidity, like the number of coins that are available to be get bought on exchange are like shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. Right. Yeah, yeah. So you know that means you know because there's some kind of metric people try to put like well you know if a hundred million dollars of Bitcoin are bought, how much does it put the price up? And like. It's going to put the price up a lot more if there are very few coins yes. left on exchanges, right? The show is also sponsored by Zellox. That's X-E-L-L-O-X. They've developed the excellent Yokis Seed Plate Kit, the solution against everything life throws at you, including fire, water, corrosion, and pests. The Yokis package includes three stainless steel plates and a pen-sized electric engraver so you can write your seed on metal just like writing on paper. And they have big plans. They're developing a next-gen hardware wallet too. But for now, you can order the Yokis to safeguard your keys in a safe and convenient way. Check out Zellox at zellox.io. That's X-E-L-L-O-X dot I-O. And finally, we're also sponsored by BitcoinBook.shop, your source for Bitcoin books in over a dozen languages, including all of Knut's books. Their mission is to translate great Bitcoin and freedom-oriented books into as many languages as possible while also publishing original titles to get even more knowledge out there. Use code FOOTPRINT for 10% off your purchases at bitcoinbook.shop. I, I think this has been a great talk, great discussion, talked about some uh, kind of downsides, you, you know, the things that are risky going on right now, but also incredibly bullish at the end. So uh, is there anything else on your, your mind in the Bitcoin space these days? Um. Well, I mean, we're like at Blockstream, we're interested in like anything that uh, has the potential to improve Bitcoin. So we're kind of got our fingers in lots of stuff, you know, like layer two and manufacturing miners, but also simplicity, which is a kind of sort of long term ossification technology, if you like. It's that the kind of technology arc started in like before Blockstream in like 2012, IRC discussions. And so that that is a sort of low-level microcode self-extensibility for Bitcoin. And the idea is because of the formal semantics and formal proofs that it could be a more secure, dependable kind of script than the current Bitcoin script even, and self-forkable. But you know, I think something like that is like, you know, probably five years out at least. But it is interesting to consider that there is you know, a very credible, serious engineering effort that could, you know, as a strong contender to get us to ossification and, and like mean it, right? Like the last soft fork, we don't need to do like the kind of soft forks we do today after that. Um, mm. That's that's like, to me, an extra bit of comfort because I feel that, you know, the drip drip of ongoing soft forks is like a little bit of persistent risk that we've mm -hmm, seen on mm -hmm. like, you know, find a way to either modularize, like so people can do things in like safe, you know, safe contained areas, 
or finalize Bitcoin script. So like it does what it does and you don't need to change it anymore. And Simplicity could do that. Is it is it inevitable to, that you uh, change the incentive structure somewhat when introducing any soft fork? Like, yeah, I think so slightly. You know, because I mean, even the fact that it, you know, like the, any previous sound enables more efficient lightning. Okay, so maybe lightning uses less block space per mm -hmm. transaction or cha changes. Like, so they they're all going to change something a little bit. Like maybe vaults change the cold storage behavior or. It probably like solves small things, of course, but yeah. Yeah, always a risk. Adam, thank you so much for coming on and uh, have a good whatever the rest of the conference is. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Thanks for having me on. So what did you think of that episode with Adam Bat? We really enjoyed this one. Adam clearly understands everything he's talking about, even if he's not Satoshi. Can't blame us for thinking he's a likely candidate. Anyway, let us know what you thought about this episode. You can send us a boostogram on Fountain, leave us a comment on YouTube, or get in touch on Nostra or Twitter. If you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to like the episode and subscribe to the channel. Our show's sponsors are Wasabi Wallet, Orange Pill App, The Bitcoin Way, Zellox, and BitcoinBook.shop. Check out their details in the description. That's all for now. See you next time, and thanks for listening. Thank you.